Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't joined our wonderful marketing transformation community yet, go to innovabiz.co and collect your free gift as well. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. A lot of people who are the coders or who are the product managers, we, we're really good at the tech, but we can't use the tech to solve a problem without your perspective and your insight and expertise into the problem. And almost everybody that I've met, you know, through my walk of life um, has they had very niche and very strong knowledge about something. And I'm like, man, I just wish I could just download your brain and hear your perspective and hear your ideas of how to make this better because I bet there's a way we could tie that with a tech tool that already exists to make an impact. So that's why I argue that there's no such thing as a tech person because one, technology is so niche and has so many tiny skills in it. And two, technology doesn't mean anything without the people behind it to have the great ideas of how to use it. Welcome back. I hope you've had an awesome week so far. If you haven't yet listened to my recent conversations with life coach Diana Gramillion and with trust-based sales expert Ari Gelper, then go check them out, but only after you've listened to today's conversation. I'm really excited to have on the InnovaBuzz podcast as my guest today, Ashley Nichols, author of Tech to Save the World. Ashley brings more than 10 years of experience working with executives from the White House to Wall Street and beyond. In her consulting tenure, she has served a number of internationally facing and multilateral clients, including the World Bank, the Department of State, and the Millennium Challenge Corporation. In her book, Tech to Save the World, she explores the idea that everyday people with a passion can use technology to build a better world. The book is a toolkit and a step-by-step guide to be used as a resource for people who want to make a difference but don't know where to start. In our discussion today, Ashley talked to me about her principles of idealistic innovation. She explained the importance of enlisting support and collaboration for implementing ideas And she stated that there's no such thing as a tech person or why we can all combine our specialist skills with tech. Without further ado then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Ashley Nichols. Hi, I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited today to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast all the way from Washington, D.C. in the USA, Ashley Nichols from Tech to Save the World. Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, Ashley. It's a great privilege to have you as my guest. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Tech to Save the World is a book that's going to be published in August. It's a conversational guide to changing the world based on tech. Uh, I'm really interested in exploring the ideas from that a bit further. So from what I know, your key philosophy is that we're all technical in some ways, even though a lot of people don't consider themselves technology people. So it'd uh, be really interesting to dig deeper into that. So before we start talking about all things technology and how it impacts on innovation, what impact are you making in the world? Honestly, I think the impact that I'm making in the world right now is gathering up a bunch of really incredible stories about people who are amazing people or who are everyday people who are using tech to make a difference in the world. Um, I started writing Tech to Save the World to really learn more about how technology can be used to make a difference in conservation or say sustainability or other key areas against key challenges. Uh, and what I found is that a lot of people just don't know the types of things that are being done to address these challenges with technology. And a lot of people don't view themselves as being the kind of person that can use technology to make a difference. 
So I'm trying to do a lot of things and pull the stories together in this book to help people see uh, that, that they themselves can make differences using simple technologies, even like their cell phones or in complex ones like uh, artificial intelligence. Mm, yeah, it's amazing. And and isn't it fascinating the world we live in? There's so much tech around and even even simple things that um, people take for granted and don't consider themselves technology geeks, if you like, and yet they, they make use of the technology in sometimes quite amazing ways. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. When I first started writing the book, I was really focused on trying to help people understand technology is not that complicated. You can use it to make a difference. Uh, and of course, technology is complicated, right? Like we mm -hmm. don't understand it. I know I'm talking to you on a podcast here, but I don't know the nuts and bolts of the coding that goes underneath it. But that doesn't mean I can't still use it. Uh, so that's been one of the most fun parts for me is helping people understand of like, well, even if we don't understand everything about how a technology works, doesn't mean that we can't use it in a way that benefits us and the world around us. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's start with why did you write the book, Tech to Save the World? Yeah, so it was the height of COVID uh, in the US. It was about October. Everything was really closing back down again after the, the weird summer. Uh, and I was sitting in my, my small apartment in Washington, DC, and it was dim and gray and cloudy. And I felt incredibly and utterly hopeless. And I was just, I felt so disconnected and disappointed and sad. And I remember thinking, I just, I wish I could help make things better, but I can't. I have absolutely no ability to do so. Uh, and around that time, I uh, was contacted by a Georgetown University professor, uh, Eric Koster, who reached out and said, hey, you know, I I've seen you around. I've, I've seen some of your work. I was wondering if you'd be interested in writing a book. Uh, and I thought, I mean, who doesn't want to write a book? Of course, everyone thinks about doing it. Uh, so I decided to give it a try. Uh, but I had no idea what topic I wanted to cover. And I jumped around to three or four different things. Uh, and around that time, I saw a news article come across about uh, using artificial intelligence to save coral reefs. And I thought, first of all, that's like how to use artificial intelligence to save coral reefs. And also, that's really cool. I'd love to learn more about that. Uh, and there's a few reasons to write a book. It's either because you're an expert in the thing and you want to share your expertise or because you want to learn about the thing and share what you've learned with others. And I decided to go that route. So I decided to dive into technology that's saving the world because I'm not that I wasn't that familiar with it. But now here I am on podcasts and in speaking engagements, speaking like an expert. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that taking that different approach to um, writing a book, which is uh, learning about learning about what, what interests you and, and then sharing that knowledge, which is essentially the core tenet of this podcast. I, you know, I don't know a lot about a lot of the things that I speak with my guests about. They're the expert. I bring them on. I have the privilege of learning from them and then, of course, sharing that with everyone else. Mm -hmm. And I have the exact same experience. I've talked to 20 plus folks in, you know, innovative spaces and technologists and other innovation writers and experts and folks who, you know, submit articles to Harvard Business Review. And I I've just been super excited to talk to them. And it's exciting for me that I'll get to share those stories. Hmm. Well, I, I want to explore some of the themes that you've learned out of out of your interviews and the stories that you've come across in a moment. Um, but one of the things you said a moment ago really piqued my interest and that was we don't need to understand the technology to use it and yet so many people are afraid of using technology in some ways i mean they use the mobile phone they use the television and the radio for you know decades almost or generations even almost and yet that's technology but when it comes to for example getting on a podcast or um, running a webinar online or things like that, they're intimidated because it's technology and I don't understand it. Why do you think there's this dichotomy, if you like, between um, using technology and gaining some benefit from it as opposed to I need to understand it before I can use it? Absolutely. So I'll actually say two things here. The first is that um, you've actually hit on a point that I really love uh, chatting about in the book, which is that um, there's actually every year a survey that comes out called the Survey of American Fear. Um, and I chatted with the man who runs it. His name is Dr. Chris Bader. Um, and I, I gave him a call and said, hey, you know, technology's top 20 on your list of American fears. Why is that? Um, and he shared, you know, this concept of humans, um, humans tend to be afraid of things that we are relying upon, but, that we, but we, when we don't understand how they work, you know, and we rely upon technology to do things like 
pay our bills or, or do our work or uh, talk to our colleagues or whatever it may be, we are relying on these technologies and we don't understand how they work, how the data flows. I couldn't tell you how this, this uh, software is working. Uh, and that triggers something in our minds of this anxiety and this uh, this lack of trust in a thing that we know we have to use to function. But but if it breaks, we couldn't fix it. We couldn't repair it. We wouldn't know what to do with ourselves if the tech just disappeared one day. Uh, mm -hmm. So that actually is triggering, triggering a psychological response in us. Uh, and the second thing that I've heard since I've written this and I've started speaking at Rotary Clubs and other groups is I get a lot of feedback from people that they're afraid of technology because it's always changing. You know, you finally get the new the new uh, software update on your iPhone and you're good to go for three minutes and then there's a new software update and you're out of battery and you don't know how it works and you can't get anything done because everything's updating so quickly. And that causes a lot of anxiety too because if there's the sensation of once we understand something enough to be able to use it effectively, it's gone and changed on us or there's an update or someone else has bought, bought, bought that technology and now like we can't even get access to it. Um, so those are really a lot of the things that I've heard from folks as to why there's that disconnect between tech that we that we use every day and this this feeling of confidence and mastery of yes i can use this to make a difference hmm, hmm. yeah it's fascinating there's there's two separate points in there i think um the i mean i'm i'm a, the sort of person that uh people say i can't can't believe how much stuff you try out and how you discover new things and so i i kind of jump on i learn about new technology by just exploring it and trying it out and in some ways, I mean, I don't know how this works, how this um, system works to connect us and to have us on video and to be able to record the uh, podcast, but I love using it. Uh, it's, it's the core part of recording our, our podcast. And yet, um, you know, I'll, I'll try out different ones. If, if, say, there was an issue with this, if it, they decided that they were no longer going to offer the service, then I've got other options and I'll just go and explore those and pick one that I like and use that. And I, I don't have any fear of that. And I don't, I, I kind of release the need to understand it. And yet other people um, see that as a, as a skill of technology. And yet I say, well, really, it's not. I'm just jumping in at the deep end and then figuring out, will I swim or float or <laughs> what happens? Um, the other part of it that you mentioned is the, the bit of, um, it always changing now that always frustrates me too you know i i get used to something and i i dive into the deep end and then i'm starting to swim so i learn how to use it and then it changes and okay i've suddenly been dunked under the water again i certainly find that quite frustrating but at the same time because i'm uh, keen to learn how to use it and how to benefit from it i i get over that so what do you think differentiates people that um are prepared to try these things out without the need to understand it from those that that are just kind of saying well this is new i've got to understand it i've got to be i've got to have that certainty that i I've, i'm in control of this thing before i use it yeah that's a great question um from what I've seen and from what I've researched, it really comes down to growth versus a fixed mindset. You're probably familiar with this, you work in business and, and innovation, but there's this concept in, in sociology that a lot of people have one of two types of mindsets uh, and that influences the way that they view themselves and the way they interact with the world. Fixed is, this is what I am, this is who I am, and I can't change that, and that has to be enough. And growth is, well, this is who I am today, but maybe there's a new opportunity to improve. And if I fail at that thing today, that doesn't mean I'll fail at it tomorrow. Uh, and those mindsets really have a big impact in the way we interact with each other in our jobs, but also with technology. You know, I you sometimes a growth mindset is something that really has to be practiced and cultivated, and you have to get used to trying and failing and viewing it not as a failure of self, but as a failure of the attempt at the time and iterating on that attempt, um, which is a whole other thing in innovation that I'll get that I'll probably get into later. But having that growth mindset around, all right, oops, I broke the computer. I'm sure Best Buy can fix that. I'll just bring it in versus, oh, I fixed, I broke the computer and I can't do this and I'm horrible at technology and, and I give up. And I think that, you know, we have so many pressures around us of, you know, the, 
it's been the pandemic, the, the world is changing, we have lots of like social requirements and work requirements and lots of us have kid requirements. We, a lot of us don't have the energy to expend, just keep like throwing our brains at things and hoping that we figure them out eventually. So even folks that sometimes have a growth mindset in life have a fixed mindset in things, specifically things like learning technology. So I think that that's the key of what I've seen in the folks that I've spoken to of the folks that are successful have failed and failed and failed and failed and then succeeded. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think uh, you've really hit on a, an interesting point there and it's around the people that um, you know, a lot of the people that do have a growth mindset in general in their business and in their personal life and development um, tend to switch to that um, that fixed mindset when it comes to technology and it's interesting you mentioned the pandemic um how many people have embraced online communication online conferencing online webinars and things because of the pandemic because they've been restricted um in running in-person events and all of a sudden you know, i'm hearing it everywhere oh wow this is actually pretty neat um, not only do I save myself the trouble of commuting? I don't have to book venues. Um, I can I can reach people across a much bigger geographic area. I'm not limited to just my local area where people come into a central venue and I can do a whole lot of other things. Of course, it's not the same as a, a live in-person event, but it's a great addition to those. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Honestly, one of my favorite personal stories around this from my work as a technology consultant is I do a lot of work with government entities. Um, and previously, you know, they were in the office five days a week. You know, some folks could remote on very specific occasions. And they had spun up this working group in February of, you know, this pandemic is a big deal. You know, what if there's a scenario in which everyone has to work from home in a month? And it was one of those scenarios where I thought that my phone was on mute, but it wasn't. And I started to laugh. Because I, I was like, there is no way, there is absolutely no way we're all going to be able to figure out how to get laptops, get Zoom working, get our mics working, get Wi-Fi. And our, so people didn't, know, didn't have Wi-Fi at their homes. I was like, there's no way we're going to figure this out. And we did because we didn't have a choice. And we had to figure it out and learn and iterate as we go until we finally figured it out. And now here we are a year later, and a lot of people love this and they rely on it and they don't want to go back to that five mm. days a week. So, Yes, yeah. Well, it, uh, I mean, I think that opens up a whole lot of other things too because it opens up um, a whole new resource in terms of a workforce for example um, you know people with young children who um, don't want to work full-time or, or maybe are taking a break because they want to spend time with their children they want to be there um, while they're growing up in their early years, they want to be there to pick them up uh, from school, bring them to school, so they've, they've got a restricted time zone. And all of a sudden, this opens up the opportunity for them to actually do virtually full-time work from home. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, well, um, coming back to Tech to Save the World, the book, what, what were some of the themes you found around um, your interviews, particularly in relation to tech and innovation? Absolutely. So it was funny because when I first started writing the book, you know, I was really focused on the technology side of it. You know, what was the code that you used? What was your development process? You know, <laughs> did you do project product management, you know, activities around it? Uh, and as you can imagine, that got really boring. Like the third interview, I was like, I'm bored of this. I don't even want to talk about this anymore. Like, it's just it's a lot of tech jargon and I'm so tired. Um, and, and I remember just I was talking to uh, a friend of mine and I was like, God, like I, I thought this would be really interesting to explore, but it's just like a lot, it's more techno babble, right? And like, who needs more of that right now? And it was funny because he looked at me and he was like, I mean, yeah, like the tech is weird, but like the people you're talking about sound pretty cool. Like, I wonder how they got there, like why they decided to try that thing. And I just looked at them and I was like, oh no, I've gone about this the totally wrong way. Uh, so about four chapters in written, like all got thrown away and I shifted the book to you know, talking to the people and hearing their stories, you know, how did you get into this? Why did you get into this? What connections did you make to get there? And through talking to those people to understand really what helped them succeed and create a technology or use a technology that had made the world a better place, I pulled together a few themes that I have termed in the book, uh, the principles of idealistic innovation. 
uh, and there's a few of them that, that I don't think are gonna be a surprise to anybody, right? Um, so there's collaboration with others uh, from different fields with different experiences. There's iteration, having that growth mindset and be, not being afraid to fail. There's applying your passion and purpose. All the successful projects I saw were people who had a deeper drive than I want to sell my startup. They all were trying to solve for a problem that they really deeply cared about. And then um, listening to stakeholders and users. You know, a lot of folks in the technology world, we think we have the answer and we go and we try to apply it. And then the people that would actually need it are like, thanks, this, this doesn't help me at all. Right. And so actually talking to your users and finally framing the problem. Right. You know, when we in the technology world start to apply tech to a challenge, we tend to get so caught up in the tech itself that we sometimes lose sight of the broader challenge that we're solving for. So those are really the themes that I saw, and I saw them again and again and again in almost every story uh, that I was was able to capture. Hmm. Yeah, well, that, that's fascinating, um, fascinating insights, and I guess it highlights how some people have been successful in that space or how, how, pe how most people have been successful in that space and the principles. I mean, the, the classic one, of course, is developing some fancy technology and then um, you know, spending heaps of money and time in perfecting it and taking it out into the marketplace. And uh, um, the typical user says, mm, not interested. <laughs> What is this? Why why should I, why should I want to use this? And and you know not having taken that step of consulted the user to start with. Yeah, so that that's a classic one, of course. Yeah, there's an incredible story uh, that I learned through writing this book um, called about uh, a device called the play pump, which was uh, a group in South Africa had this idea that you could pump water uh, from the ground in spaces where water wasn't very readily available using merry-go-rounds. Uh, and it was this beautiful concept, right, of like you install merry-go-rounds in, in you know, remote areas and children can play on this new um, playground device and then it pumps the water and you just see the children frolicking and there's water and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. Uh, and this actually garnered a lot of attention around the world. It it result, it like got like 15 million dollars in investment from the United States and like entities in the US announced by first lady at the time Laura Bush like it was a huge deal worldwide um, and a few years ago the journalist who initially like broke the story of this device uh, started to get weird reports about how they weren't working and so she she traveled back out she went out uh, to Africa to visit some of the sites where they'd installed this device and it turned out it turned out a few things one a lot of them broke they were very hard to fix. It was difficult to get new ones. Children are children. They got bored in five minutes and they stopped using it. Yeah. And then meanwhile, you know, the women of the villages who had pre they previously had hand pumps that they could use to get water. They replaced the hand pumps with these devices. And now you saw you had these elderly women trying to like push merry-go-rounds around to get water to pump in these areas. And it was it was just a classic example of a beautiful, great idea that they didn't actually like talk to people about before they actually installed them. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I mean, when you, when you first mentioned that, I hadn't heard this this one before. But when you first mentioned it, uh, the merry-go-round and the children, I thought, well, it's kind of like almost child labour um, because <laughs> you know because my vision straight away was the child will jump on there and five minutes later, oh, I've had enough of this. I want to go on the slide or I want to gonna go on the swing. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. And that's exactly what happened. Hmm. All right. Do you have any other interesting stories that you can share from the book? I mean, there, there's, you, you highlighted in, in some of your communication with me, um, you know, you mentioned earlier the coral reefs one. And also there's, there's one you highlighted um, around a network of underwater space stations, which sounded fascinating, too. Absolutely. There's so many stories. I'm happy to speak to these, though. Um, so AI for Coral Reefs um, was a project actually run by a company called Accenture, um, which is a big technology company all around the world. Um, full disclosure, I actually work at Accenture, but I'd heard about the story before I joined them. Um, and so uh, Accenture started uh, had a team had a team based out of Singapore, uh, and Accenture has a lot of like employee resource groups. So they had one group that was about scuba diving. And this group began to volunteer uh, with an organization in the Philippines that was focused on coral preservation. Uh, one thing about the Philippines is that there's a lot of uh, blast fishing there. So that means the local fishermen go out and they make homemade explosives and they toss them in the water and then they go boom and they just gather up the fish that are killed or stunned by that explosion. 
downside of that, of course, is that it, it takes out a lot of the reef and you kill a lot of fish that you don't really want to kill because they're too young and not really feasible to sell and market. But it's a much easier way to fish. So uh, there's an organization in the Philippines that's been trying to regrow coral that has been damaged by blast fishing. Uh, and the Accenture group initially went out and started helping them by like regrowing the coral and like tracking their progress. Uh, and then they started to wonder, you know, we're, we're technology experts. We work in artificial intelligence. Uh, is there something we can do? How can we tie our expertise in technology to this effort? And one of the things they learned in collaborating with this organization is that the way uh, coral health, coral reef health is monitored is somebody once a month gears up in a scuba suit, goes down for a few hours and takes a bunch of pictures. But they don't take pictures of the coral. They take pictures of the fish because the number of fish, the size of the fish, and the diversity of the fish actually indicates how many fish live in a reef. So, and there therefore is a reflection, reflection of how healthy that reef is. Problem, of course, is that one, it's expensive, it's dangerous, and also having a diver on the reef influences whether or not the fish are out. So it was actually really hard to monitor. So Accenture worked with this group to, uh, and a gentleman at Accenture named Philippe Daniel, who is the project manager, uh, worked with this group to try and figure out other ways to do this. Uh, and he was an artificial intelligence uh, designer. Uh, and so he worked with them to create uh, an underwater camera that was in like a casing uh, that was programmed to take a picture anytime it saw, anytime it had movement go by. So they put it underneath in the reef and fish would go by, click, there's a picture. So then they had a picture. Then Philippe coded an algorithm that said, okay, this is this type of fish and we project that it's about this age. And the more pictures that the algorithm got, the quicker it was able to say, okay, today I've seen 12 fish that look like they're six months old, uh, and then feed that information into a dashboard. So then once a month, the organization could go in and say, oh, you know, how is reef C3 doing? Oh, look, like it looks like we've actually seen an uptick in fish that are six months or older out there. And there's uh, more, fish, more fish types out there than we knew of before. Uh, and so it became a new way for them to monitor the health of the reef and see whether their efforts to regrow coral was actually having an impact in the region. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite amazing. I mean, the, the remote camera idea is probably an older one, but how do you use the artificial intelligence to then recognize what that camera is, is seeing without um, people getting involved in, in lengthy and time-consuming analysis? That's quite amazing. Absolutely. And then you also mentioned the underwater space stations. Uh, this was another early one that I was excited to write about. Um, so Fabien Cousteau, his, who is the grandson of Jacques Cousteau, um, he has, you know, been working in marine biology for most of his life. It's almost like his, you know, uh, his heritage, right, of like the work his, his gra grandfather started. His grandfather was like the original aquanaut. How cool mm. is that? Um, and a few years ago, he was really looking at the International Space Station. And he'd always had, had this hope and vision for like creating something other underground, underwater, um, but like couldn't really figure out how to make it last. There are underwater research centers today, but they are very tiny. They're very limited in the technology you can have. Um, and, and frankly, they rust out. They rust, they, they tend to rust out and then you can't do much with them. They just kind of stagnate under there. Um, and he wanted to think of a way to modernize that. And so he looked up, he looked to the stars, and he looked at the International Space Station, um, which uses modularization. So the International Space Station is designed to have pieces added and removed as they are created over time and as technology develops to create new spaces and, and bring new tools to it. Um, so he had this idea in, I think, 2018, and he started to go, uh, he had this idea in 2018 to basically create an underwater space station called Proteus in Curacao. And so he, he knew he couldn't do it alone. You know, he was the aquanaut guy, but he wasn't the engineering guy. Uh, and so he started to go around to the world governments, um, Navy organization, naval organizations, uh, higher education institutions and say, hey, I have this idea, but uh, like how, you know, do you want to help? Do you want to participate in it? Do you see value in this? Uh, and one thing that I loved about his story was that he was so passionate about it. He would go into rooms and he would speak about this vision that he had and share his, share what he'd love uh, to do. And then there'd be a pause and every single person in the room would be like, yes, 
let's do that. We have to try and do this. Like it's worth, it is worth the potential risk to like try and actually make this thing happen. Um, and he shared with me that he was really surprised at the positive feedback that he got. But in talking to him and hearing him speak about it, it was clear why that had happened, right? Mm. Because he had this vision and he saw the value and benefit of it. Um, and he could clearly articulate like, here are the ways that this could change the world. Uh, and it honestly, it was hard not to be excited after hearing him speak. So Fabian Cousteau is definitely, definitely an example of someone who's taken passion and really turned it into action um, and advocacy. Hmm. Yeah, interesting story. And and I look forward, I'll have to um, dig deeper on that. I look forward to seeing what comes out of that project. Absolutely. Hmm. I think they'll be opening in 2023. So stay tuned. Okay. All right. Um now, one of the things I wanted to come back to, and, and that's, uh, you know, you say there's no such thing as a tech person and in the book. And what what's, uh, what's behind that? Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of us view a tech person as, as friends have told me, the person who does the tech, Ashley, like a tech person is somebody who can like sit down and code and they probably have a Bitcoin portfolio and they like know how all this stuff works and I don't understand it. And yes, like a lot of us do have this vision of a tech person. And a lot of the times we envision like the solo genius tech titans, right? The Mark Zuckerbergs or the Bill Gates or the Elon Musks. Those are the people when we think of technology. When we think of people who are going to save the world through technology, it's usually one of those types of people. Um, but as I mentioned, I'm a technology consultant. And one of my favorite things to share with people is that no one person can really create any technology. I mean, look at something like Zoom. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was curious and I checked out Zoom's job listings to see, okay, like what are the type of skills it takes to make Zoom? And there were like 17 different listings of everything from uh, project manager to tester uh, to coder to quality assurance person. It took all these different people with these very niche skills to make something that we use all the time, Zoom, work at all. Uh, and I think what I really loved about that was I think a lot of people discount their personal experiences and their perspectives and their backgrounds because they're like, well, yeah, I'm really well versed in this, but like, I'm not really like a tech person. Like, I don't know how to apply tech to make that better, but I would flip it around. You know, a lot of people who are the coders or who are the product managers, we, we're really good at the tech, but we can't use the tech to solve a problem without your perspective and your insight and expertise into the problem. And almost everybody that I've met, you know, through my walk of life um, has they had very niche and very strong knowledge about something. And I'm like, man, I just wish I could just download your brain and hear your perspective and hear your ideas of how to make this better, because I bet there's a way we could tie that with a tech tool that already exists to make an impact. So that's why I argue that there's no such thing as a tech person, because one, technology is so niche and has so many tiny skills in it. And two, Technology doesn't mean anything without the people behind it to have the great ideas of how to use it. Hmm. Yeah, and and applying it to the right problem and making sure that um, that solution is actually something that those that have the problem value. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One of the other things that I found fascinating in some of the material you shared was the, the college student who developed an app to help his father deal with PTSD. Tell us more about that one. Absolutely. Uh, so Tyler Sklutacek, um was a college student and he was studying computer science. That much is true. Uh, and he was studying in Minnesota. And one day while he was studying, he gets this email invitation to uh, notifying him about a hackathon. And for any listeners who aren't familiar with a hackathon, a hackathon is basically a one to two day event where they get a bunch of bright people in a room and they give them one problem to solve and they see how they creatively solve this problem give them all kinds of tools and like experts and tech that they can like fiddle with to see what they can come up with. So Tyler's just, you know, finish about to finish up his uh, undergraduate degree and he gets this email invitation uh, and he like freezes, you know, and he looks at it and he just is, gets the sensation of, I have to go to this because it's a hackathon hosted by um, the VA, the, the Veterans Health Department uh, in Washington, DC. And it is entirely framed around helping sufferers of PTSD. Uh, and the reason that this caught Tyler's attention was because actually growing up, his own father uh, had had gone and, and uh, been in combat in Afghanistan and returned uh, and, and had traumatic nightmares uh, to the point where he couldn't sleep. Uh, he turned to drugs and alcohol. He lost his job. He lost his wife. He pretty much lost everything because he just could not sleep through the night because of these traumatic nightmares. So this was a, a scenario that was near and dear to Tyler's heart. 
so he, being a college student, saved up his money. He got on a plane. He flew halfway across the country to get to Washington, D.C. Um, one other thing about hackathons that Tyler shared with me when he get, went from when, when he got there was that they tend to be very focused on local groups, right? So Washington, D.C. had, you know, George Washington University students grouped and uh, Georgetown students grouped and American University students grouped. And Tyler's there and just a straggler from, you know, out in Minnesota. And so he literally wanders around the hackathon to find people who are sitting by themselves. And he's like, hey, do you do you need a team? Let's be on a team. Come be on my team. And they build this team of just like, I don't want to say stragglers, but folks who, who didn't come together. You know, they came from all over with different backgrounds and different skill sets. And so they got to work. Um, and the theme around this hackathon, one of the tools they had available to them was a smartwatch or like a... Um, uh, an activity tracker device, you know, like mm. a Fitbit or like an Apple Watch, how it can measure your heart rate and you can measure calories and things like that. And that was one of the devices that they had available to work with. So the group sits down and they start talking to uh, some clinicians from the VA about how PTSD is traditionally treated and they go through all these different ideas. But one, idea, one fact that really pops out to them is that when PTSD sufferers have traumatic nightmares, um, sometimes they're assigned service dogs and those service dogs are taught to wake up, um, wake up someone who suffers from PTSD when they're in the midst of a traumatic nightmare, so they're not, so it, so it doesn't like wake them up, and they're not like mm. thrashing and violent when that happens. So they're the dog is taught to gently like nudge them awake or like lick them awake in a very like gentle, like loving way. And the team looked at the the watch, which at the time, you know, you could use them as like wake up alarms, right, to like wake up in the morning. And they thought, is there a way that we can emulate? basically a service dog nudging you gently awake when you're in the midst of a nightmare, um, you know, and, and not fully pull you out of uh, the deep sleep that you need to really like be well rested the next day. Uh, so they started to fiddle with this watch to see if they could figure out a way to make it buzz when somebody's pulse was, in, was racing and they began to sweat and have, have external indicators of having a traumatic nightmare. Long story short, they were able to create uh, an initial version of this application. They won the hackathon. Yay, it's great. Um, but it was a two-day event. And so they had this great idea, they had this prototype, but they had no way to test it and make sure it was actually viable and that it could actually have an impact. So Tyler took it home to his dad. He said, Dad, um, I went to this hackathon, I'm, I had this group, we have this idea, um, we think it'll work, but I, I don't know for sure, do you wanna try it? Uh, and his dad burst into tears and he said, I will try anything. Um, so Tyler and his dad get hooked up and then every night for months, uh, Tyler's dad would wear it, uh, it would buzz, either fully wake him up before a nightmare or uh, he would he would go through a nightmare anyway and not be awakened. Uh, and Tyler took the data, the metadata from the Fitbit tracker of the pulse, all the indicators, and slowly over time narrowed it down to get to the point until they were both able to work together to have the indicator buzz and pull his dad out of the nightmare space, but not fully wake him up. Um, and so that he was able to start to finally sleep through the night without having a traumatic nightmare. And that recently uh, was is now a new capability. It's called Nightwear. Uh, and that was recently approved by the United States Food and Drug Administration as a treatment for PTSD or as a symptom management for PTSD. Mm, that's pretty amazing. And it highlights the mindset of somebody that has a passion and a desire to solve a problem and then take that, take a solution that, that or an idea that they've come up with and actually test it out with a a person that has the problem. Hmm. Absolutely. That was the truest listen to the stakeholders that I'd <laughs> seen in, in all my interviews was he was like, well, dad, you're the stakeholder I tried this for. So let's see how it works. Hmm. All right. Well, fascinating stuff. This is uh, great. I could go on talking tech and, and tech uh, ideas that uh, make a big difference in the world for ages, but I'm aware of the time. And I think it's a good point now to move on to the buzz, which is our innovation round, and it's designed to help our audience who are primarily innovators and leaders in their field with some tips from your experience. So I've got five questions. Hopefully you'll give us some answers that'll inspire the listener to go and do something awesome today as a result. All right, let's do it. What's the number one thing you think anyone needs to do to be more innovative? Fail. Create space for failure. <laughs> you know, make room to fail. If you or your team are comfortable failing, if you have, you know, some some barriers set up to where you can fail uh, and, and be creative, then the things that you can come up with are incredible. You would be amazed what people have come up with when they're not afraid to fail. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Where um, 
the ego gets in the way of us um, allowing that space for failure, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. We sort of hate being wrong, and uh, and yet being wrong. I mean, it's like Edison said that you know I haven't found nine hundred or was it nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine ways. I've learnt 9,999 ways that don't work. Um, I haven't failed that many times. Exactly, exactly that. Hmm. All right, what's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? Uh, I've created space for my teams to fail. Um, I am a technology consulting uh, manager, and so I do lead pretty large teams of 20 to 30 folks. uh, And I always do create space of, you know, there are very few things that we can break that we can't fix, and let's try and be creative. Uh, So in my day job, that's the best way. And then, of course, uh, in my personal time, uh, doing things like this, you know, researching tech to save the world, sharing other people's stories. I have loved going out and speaking about these these amazing people that I've spoken with because the number of people who've come to me and said, I never thought I could do something like this um, has been really wonderful. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great thing to be able to do, isn't it, to share other people's stories, particularly if they're... I mean, one of, one of the things about some of these tech people is that they probably don't go out and talk about themselves or their their discoveries that much. And so sharing that with with the world is is a great gift. Mm-hmm. What's a, a favorite resource of yours that you use a lot? So a favorite resource that I've been using a lot lately uh, is called Mural. Um, I'm not sure how many folks are familiar with it, but I'm really big into design thinking and brainstorming and throwing spaghetti up on a wall to see what sticks. Uh, and Mural, I think, has a free service. Um, you, can, you and your team can log in and you can create stickies and put them up and vote on them and change colors. Uh, so it's a really great resource for design thinking or focus groups or even like back of the napkin prototyping for when we're in the remote world. Mm. Yeah, I, I look at it. I, I've used a little, a little bit. I, I look at it as a technological whiteboard, a, a virtual whiteboard that you can work with remote teams. Yeah, I really loved using it uh, for, for my teams and some of my work. So it's been really helpful, especially when we can't be in the same room. Yeah. All right. Now, what's the best way to keep a project on track? Ooh. I mean, there's always like the answers of like keeping with the project plan, right? And things like yeah. that. But honestly, to be super honest with you, I think the best way to keep a project on track is to keep and in mind the reason why you're doing it. You know, mm. keep in mind the stakeholders, keep in mind the problem you're solving for. So many problems, so many projects that I have worked on in the past and so many technologies that I have implemented have just gone completely off the rails because we started out with, we're gonna solve this one problem and the further along we got, we got more and more requirements and more and more opinions and more and more nuances. And by the end of the day, the thing we actually delivered maybe didn't even do the thing we we set out to do in the first place. And I think that when we're talking about technology, it's so easy to do that. You know, you want to make sure you're delivering something valuable, so you're trying to capture everything. And sometimes you can't. Staying focused on the problem you're trying to solve, regardless of your technology, regardless of the other noise, will help you refocus when you have to make tough decisions. Hmm. Yeah, I love it. Uh, it reminds me of, and I can't remember exactly the details of this cartoon, but there there is this cartoon. It's a classic one in, in the design space where, on the one side, there's the, um, this was the project brief and it's a sketch of something. And on the other side, there, this was the product that they developed. And there's another sketch and it's a, a really complicated contraption that bears no resemblance at all to the project brief. Yep, exactly. And I've seen that time and time again. And that, that becomes even more true when we're doing things, uh, to, cha- to tackle big challenges that, that, that's going to be required to save the world. So even, even more so true for idealistic innovation. Yeah. Okay. Now, finally, what uh, is the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? Know your own strengths. Know your own story. Um, I, to make it personal, you know, I grew, I growing up, uh, you know, really loved to read and write and like thought that that was going to be my thing. And I studied journalism. uh, And then I came into the consulting world where I work in a lot of technology and even had one of my bosses, you know, say, Ashley, like you, you're, you should be a technology consultant. Like you would be really great at this if you would just let yourself like technology. And I was like, no, I'm not a technology person. Uh, that's not me. I'm not familiar with any of that. But I can talk to you about, you know, writing and nonprofits and communications all day. Um, and when, and get back to the point earlier, if there's no such thing as a technology person, I, I have realized throughout the years of 
my strengths of writing do actually help with technology efforts or implementation. You know, my strengths of hearing people's stories are great for things like requirements gathering. Um, I use my background in nonprofits all the time when I'm thinking about uh, tech to save the world. So that's kind of like jumbled up answer, but that's to share like every every single person has a different set of backgrounds and experiences. And I think that we discredit those because we always think there's somebody else out there who's better at that or knows more about it than we do. And my counter is maybe so, but nobody has your unique mix. So knowing your own strengths and being willing to raise your hand and speak to them and apply them is definitely a really great way to differentiate yourself, in my opinion. Yeah, I love it. I love that you said nobody has that same mix. And and you're right, we tend to discount some of the things that perhaps we dabble in. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that people have said to me, well, you know, you discover new things all the time. You're You're the person that's always up to date and so on and and i don't consider that a skill it's just kind of an interest that i have i see something and you know i suffer from shiny new object syndrome so i've got to satisfy my curiosity and and then find that balance between um, not getting down going too far down that rabbit hole but satisfying the curiosity and of course that means that i'm always alerted to what's new out there and i'm always keen to try it out and i discount that because i think people that do that for a living or people that really research these things in depth know so much more about it than me but then on the other hand um, bringing that in combining it with some of the other skills i have is, is very unique mm -hmm. absolutely i mean maybe they're not comfortable speaking to them or maybe they haven't tried as many things as you've tried i mean there's always some differentiator in those things great i love it okay um thanks ashley this has been really fabulous now um where can people find out about the book, when does it launch and where can they um, get in touch with you and reach out and perhaps even say thanks for what you've shared or maybe they've even got a technology story they'd like to share with you. Well, if you have a tech story to share with me, I'd love to hear it. I love stories. Um, you can find out more about the book at techtosavetheworld.com. Um, the book does release in August, but there's a mailing list there you can sign up for to get a note when it's out on Amazon and in bookstores. Uh, and if you'd like to find me, uh, ashleycnichols.com is the place to be. And uh, I'm there on LinkedIn and also by email. So very easily accessible online. Great. We'll include all those links in the show notes so people can click straight through. Now, do you have any parting advice you'd like to leave our listener today, Ashley? Only parting advice for I have for you is, you know, if you feel like you want to make a difference, if you feel like there's something that you want to do and you just don't know where to start, you don't, you don't even have to go read my book, you know, go read a book, go do a Google search, go dive into like some small research to learn about a new tech that you think may somehow work, help the thing that you're working on. Um, even something like having a Facebook Live event to raise money for the local animal shelter is using tech to save the world. So I would say if you feel that drive and you're, you feel like you're not that kind of person, I would argue that you are the kind of person and you are the person. Uh, so please get out there, do the small thing. It'll take billions of us doing the small thing to actually make the difference. Hmm. Yeah, I love it. And, and uh, it's, it's kind of like if you have this idea or you have this feeling that somebody should do something about that um, it's I think um, what was the question I came across recently and I thought that's great um, something along the lines of why not me and why not now and you know if unless the answer unless you can give a really good answer to that <laughs> just go do it yep, exactly and try and fail and you'll learn from your failure and maybe someone will learn from that someone else will learn from that failure and do something with it so hmm. there's no harm in trying Great. I love it. All right. Finally, then, who else should I get on this show and why? You know, I really have to mend, uh, recommend uh, Tyler Sklutzicek. He is uh, the young gentleman who made the, the PTSD app. I think he's wonderful to talk to. Uh, another person I'll recommend is Dr. Laura Stachel. Um, she and her husband, Hal, actually combined their very niche backgrounds. Uh, she was an obstetrician, uh, so uh, a woman who's uh, a doctor who specializes in uh, maternal health and um, birth. And her husband was a solar, en uh, solar energy educator. And together they created a device called the Solar Suitcase that brings light and electricity to remote parts of the world that don't have steady access to light. Um, and that is critical because in areas that don't have steady access to light, women and children are three times more likely to die in the dark. Um, so that is actually a device that is really making an incredible difference around the world. So Dr. Laura Stachel is my second recommendation. 
Great, I love it. Well, I'll get introductions to Telly and and Laura from you, and um, we'll reach out to them and see if we can get them on the show as well and explore those inventions and ask them some questions around how they how they tackled the problem, how they identified the problem that they were passionate about, how they tackled it, what sort of mindset they had around that, and how they um, built a successful um, outcome. That'll be incredible. I'll be first in line to listen. <laughs> Love it. All right. Well, thanks so much for sharing your time and your insights with us today on the Innova Buzz podcast. Ashley, I've really enjoyed this. There's been some fascinating stories. I can't wait for the book to come out to read read it in depth and um, explore the other stories that are in there. So all the best for the book launch and all the best for the future. And let's keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that engaging and informative conversation with Ashley and took something away from her episode. I loved Ashley's approach to writing a book, not as an expert in the field, rather a way to learn about the thing that interests you most. I'd love to know what you took away from Ashley's episode. Leave a comment below the blog post, which you can find at innovabiz.co forward slash Ashley Nichols. That is A-S-H. L-E-Y-N-I-C-H-O-L-S. All lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash Ashley Nichols. You'll also find contact information for getting in touch with Ashley there, as well as links to the Tech to Save the World website, her social media pages, and the other resources we spoke about in our conversation today. Now, if you like this episode, don't keep it to yourself. Please share it with two other people at least that it might help. Tag me in on that share and I'll reach out to you to say thank you with a special surprise. Ashley suggested that we have a conversation with Tyler Skluchacek of MyBivy and Dr. Laura Stachel of We Care Solar on a future InnovaBuzz podcast episode. So Tyler and Laura, keep an eye on your inboxes for an invitation from us to the InnovaBuzz podcast courtesy of Ashley Nichols. Tune in again to the next episodes of the Innova Buzz podcast where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up, including Steve Hoffman of Founders Space and author of Make Elephants Fly, as well as the queen of the sales success mindset, Christine Schlonsky. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show to be reminded of new episodes. It's free to subscribe. Leave a review if you like. Even if you don't like me, I'm okay with that. I'm asking you to leave a review because it helps other people find this show. Go to innovabiz.co to join our marketing transformation community and access a free gift my team and I made for you. It's the Marketing Master Mini Class. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating.